lesson nine. Uh, lesson nine. There we go. Uh, in our series of the book of Hosea, today we're going to be looking at chapter six. So if you'll turn there, Hosea six. Again, just to refresh your memory, uh, the, the, the book of Hosea is divided into two main parts. So we've used this chart uh, up here on the screen uh, just to uh, just keep in your mind sort of the major uh, divisions uh, in, this, in this book and that, that main divide being between chapters 3 and chapter 4. So in chapters 1 to 3, we witness what you might call a, a real-life drama uh, involving Hosea and his marriage to Gomer and their children. Uh, and then beginning in chapter 4, we find this sort of an anthology or a collection of uh, Hosea's prophecies or preaching that demonstrate primarily the long-suffering uh, love of God for his covenant people. And to more fully understand that as we go along, what, what we, we find in these chapters, really starting in chapter 4, Four, five, six, seven, and eight. We just we see initially uh, the depths of Israel's sin, and and we understand that. We understand that if we're really going to uh, to, to comprehend and grasp the love and the grace of God, that we have to first understand understand the understand the darkness and the sin. Uh, and so that's sort of the way that this this un, this unfolds. So in chapters four and five, uh, we said that the Lord indicts and sentences His people. Uh, as he portrays himself as uh, this sort of a, a prosecuting attorney, as well as the judge and jury. And then even at the end of chapter 5, he portrays himself, interestingly, as, as a predator. Uh, you'll notice there in chapter 5, verse, uh, in verse 12, Ephraim, or Israel, has shown its, uh, shown its determination to pursue worthless idols, uh, and Judah has been blatantly guilty of dishonesty and greed. And so he says there in verse 12, Therefore, I am like a moth to Ephraim and like rottenness to the house of Judah. So he's saying essentially, the Lord is, is saying, I'm, I am consuming the northern tribes sort of little by little. Uh, and I am like wood rot to the house of Judah. That is to say that both houses are falling to pieces and cannot maintain themselves any longer. Which should have driven, as we said, should, that should have driven them to repent, to realize that that was the case, um, and should have driven them to trust in the Lord, but actually uh, drove them in the opposite direction, always looking for help from others and not from God. So verse 13, he says, When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jareb, uh, but he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. And so there seems to be this opportunity when Ephraim or Israel and Judah recognized that there was a problem. Uh, they saw their own condition, but they did not respond appropriately at uh, the time. And so they, they looked to, in this case, New American Standard says, Yareb or Jareb, uh, it's, just a, it's, a, it's a word that means to contend or to plead the cause. And so that's really what Israel was doing. They were turning to, in some cases, Egypt, in some cases, Assyria, or making some sort of a, a deal with Assyria to keep them at, at, at a distance. But the, but the Lord says this is all going to be in vain. That Ephraim's sinful action in relying upon Assyrian and it's some sort of an Assyrian treaty for protection 
would not dispense with the real problems that existed. So we, we mentioned this Deuteronomy 32, 39. It says, See now that I, I am he, this is the Lord speaking, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. And so the way that the way that Hosea describes the Lord here is that he, he is this sort of he is the king of kings, he is the he is the ultimate a predator, if you will. And you'll notice this rich imagery in verse 14. It says, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. Now it's interesting in, in Nahum, and I mentioned this, we didn't have time to really look at this last, last time we were together. But in Nahum chapter 2, Nahum describes in detail the coming doom of, of Nineveh, the capital, Syria, uh, the capital city of Assyria. And he actually applies in that chapter this lion imagery. And so we find this taunt in verse 11 of chapter 2. This is in Nahum. Verse 11 says, Where is the den of lions and the feeding place of the young lions, where, where the lion, lioness and lion's cub prowled, with nothing to, dis, to disturb them. The lion tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his lionesses, and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. And so in, in, that, in that context, Nahum compares Assyria to a lion because of this sort of lion fetish that um, that these, these um, uh, various uh, powers had, particularly Assyria, and because of the Assyrians' sort of br- brutal and fierce conquest. And so because Nineveh, in that case, was the capital of Assyria, it is referred to in that passage as the lion's den. But Nahum basically declares that things have changed. Assyria used to be able to go out and to behave like the lion's, going about with no opposition. But now, he says, the situation is different. It is time to be fearful, and there's no, really no place of uh, security for uh, Nineveh. And then Nahum draws this section to a conclusion by looking beyond sort of the human players to the ultimate reality, the controlling reality. In verse 13, he says, this is the Lord, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, I will burn up her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour her, your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. So Yahweh says he will judge the lions of Nineveh, destroying its war machine and influence upon the land. So when you, when you go back to Hosea 5, and verse 15, you, you notice there what what the Lord declares. He says, I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. So he says, I will tear them to pieces and rip them apart in judgment. And then I will return to my lair in a sort of the imagery is he's going to go back and sort of digest everything that has been accomplished in judgment. But again, the ultimate purpose here is not to extinguish his people of, of covenant promise because he says uh, in, in that verse that he will do this until 
uh, until they confess their culpability, until they truly know what it means to seek the Lord, because they actually say, we talked, looked at this in a few weeks ago, how they say they're going to worship, they say they're going to offer sacrifices, they actually use the phrase that they're going to seek the Lord, but when they go to seek Him, they cannot find Him, because the Lord has withdrawn Himself from them. So whatever, the, whatever kind of seeking they're doing, it's not the kind of seeking that the Lord requires. It's not a kind of seeking that comes from the heart, in their case, it was a sort of external seeking, just sort of going through the motions, but not really worshiping the Lord um, with all their being. And we'll even see that, that that continues into the indictment of that, continues into today's, what we look at today in chapter 6. So in chapters 4 and 5, the Lord is indicted and sentenced his people. And now in chapter 6, we see that he is the one who examines any professions of repentance. So, well, let's just read through this, uh, we'll just read through this chapter, and then we'll go back through it and, and comment on some things. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 6 says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him or in his presence. Verse 3, So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore I have hooned them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints. And as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed crime. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled itself. Also, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people. So the, there is this offer of, of an opportunity for repentance. We see that at the end of chapter 5 and verse 15. But what comes next is not true Repentance, but we might call it the people's superficial display of repentance in these first few verses of chapter 6. You're, you're familiar with, with the phrase, actions speak louder than words. Uh, James applies this principle to faith in James chapter 2. He says there in verse 15, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Verse 17, Even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. And I, I would argue that what Hosea is doing here is he's applying this principle rather than 
as James does, sort of relating this to the issue of faith in the believer's life or in a person's life, that what Hosea is doing is he's applying this principle to the subject of, of repentance. Uh, there's, there's really uh, two, two, I guess, these verses, these first three verses can be viewed in two different ways. If you sort of isolated them, they seem to be an expression of true repentance. So if you just looked, if you just dove into Hosea and all you just started in chapter 6, verse 1, and just read verses 1 to 3, it would seem that this is, what, this is true repentance. This is what you should do if you are genuine about uh, turning from sin and turning in trust to the Lord. Of course, the offer is there, and, and as we said in verse, verse 15 of the previous chapter, the people can certainly repent, and someday his people would. We've talked about that sort of future aspect of these things, and that will become more clear as we get towards the end of the book. Uh, but that, uh, that has sort of led commentators to, to uh, conclude, at least some of them, to conclude that this section speaks about the future repentance of the remnant of Israel during those, those, those last days, or you might even say if you wanted to hone in on it, even those times of the Great Tribulation. So they see this as sort of an expression of genuine repentance, but then obviously they know that Israel's not genuinely repenting, so what they do is they take that. <laughs> I hope a pipe doesn't just all of a sudden. <laughs> um, but they take this as genuine repentance, but then they know this isn't playing out in the present, and so what they do is they say, then this must speak about a time in the future when Israel says this, right? So it's genuine, but it has to be future because this obviously was not the heart attitude of Israel at, at the time. So that's, that's one way of sort of looking at these, at these verses. On the other hand, I think if you look at these things, these words in context, especially in light of the verses that come after these verses, they appear to be nothing more than evidences of false repentance. In other words, if you, if you take these verses and then you, and then you will look, and we'll look at the ones that follow, it seems that the people are saying these things but again, just like some of the other examples we've looked at, they may be saying these things, but that doesn't mean that these things are actually true, right? It doesn't mean that there's actually actions that are following what they're saying. So I would argue that these are words, right, but they're just empty words. And we've already seen in chapter 5 examples of this, of this again. They're going saying we're seeking. They're going saying that they know the Lord, but they don't really know the Lord. Right? They're seeking, but they can't find him because he's withdrawn himself from them. Those kinds of things. I think this is simply another example of the fact that Israel at this time was not recognizing the real problem. Right? They were continuing to offer the sacrifices. They were to continuing to go and to, to do a lot of the things that the Mosaic Covenant prescribed, but they were doing them with, it was all vain worship. Right? Again, this issue of syncretism had sort of spoiled the whole thing, and so it wasn't acceptable to God. So I, that's, what, that's sort of the take we're going we're gonna to have on this. That this is, these, are, these first few verses are just words that sounds good, uh, but there's really no substance. And that is the issue that he addresses beginning in verse 4. So verses 1 and 2, he says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He's wounded us, but he will bandage us. us. 
He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. Again, this, this uh, word here in verse 1, return, this is from that repentance word group. Uh, we see it uh, several times or a number of times really in this particular book. It's 20, 23 times in the book of Hosea. We see it first to show up in Hosea chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, there it says that speaking of, um, of, of Israel, but also kind of bringing in the, the analogy, the illustration here of, of Hosea's wife, Gomer. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. She will seek them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me than, uh, then than now. And so this, this term in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 7 of I will go back, that is, that is the same word. Um, it's, it's just a word that means to turn back or, or to return to. And so it pops up. It's, it's really found, it's very prevalent in, in, the, uh, in the prophets uh, overall, but a number of times here it'll, it'll also uh, show up again throughout the book and finally in Hosea chapter 14, verse, verse 7. And this returning seems to be based on the predicted wounding of God from the end of chapter 5 where he is depicted as a lion. So it's as if this, you, they have this threat, right, that, that, that God is this ultimate predator. He's this lion that is going to do this to them. And that seems to be the impetus for their returning or for saying what they're about to say, right, in these first few verses. So it, it, it sounds like that when God announced that he would do to them what he said back in chapter 5, that it finally got through to them. And so they say, let us return. And then they say, verse 3, so let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. So they're saying, let, let us uh, press on to know him. Again, the issue of acknowledging the Lord or knowing him experientially. So we've, we've talked about this knowledge of God, that it's not just knowing about God. It's, it's a word that actually describes experiencing, in a sense, personally that knowledge, or as we said, we might even translate it, acknowledging the Lord. Uh, and, and, and he says here that this is, they're, they're claiming this is a hot pursuit. They're, they're claiming that they are, this is an all-out pursuit, that they really want to know God but the Lord's rhetorical questions and contrary evidences that come and that follow, beginning in verse 4, demonstrate that their words are no more than that. Just words. And their words do not constitute that future time that was anticipated by that word until in chapter 5, verse 15. Yes, sir. Uh, that's po- possible. I mean, you have you have these plurals. Let us let us press on. So I don't I don't know that. I mean, I, you'd have to, you know, you'd have to say who 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 is it? Is it him, or is it him? And who would he be including in that? Uh, he certainly wouldn't be wrapping the the nation into that. So there could be. I mean, you could say some some faith some of those of the, of the faithful. Uh, but again, this is not. This section is about indicting. This section is about. 
It's not about the prophet. It's not about those who are faithful. There's really no mention of those who are in that category. This is all about the Lord bringing... bringing we mentioned this. It's, it's, like, it's as if God is bringing Exhibit A, Exhibit B, Exhibit C, Exhibit D, this courtroom setting, and the prophet's bringing these indictments, and then he's bringing forward the evidence that, that, what, those, that what he's saying is true. And so he's talking about their vain worship. He's talking about their, uh, their uh, pseudo-pursuits of God, but then showing that it's, it's really empty. And so I see this as, as him, again, rather than switching to sort of what he, himself personally, he's just saying, and this is another example. So this is another example of the fact that Israel doesn't get it, that they're continuing to, with their lips, right, say that they love God or say that they know God and that they're loyal to God, but all the evidence points to the fact that they do not understand the truth, they do not have an intimate knowledge of God, and they are not loyal to Him, right? So it's, it's, it's like these things come one after another of this is the indictment and here's the proof. So to me, it was maybe a little disjointed to, to shift the focus onto that. So... Uh, again, the, but, but I mean, these, the people that take the view that this is something future, I mean, that's, it's a possibility. I'm just saying, I'm not saying it's a slam dunk. I'm saying there are some, some of these passages you have to, you have to, you have to decide, you know, which is it. I'm saying if you only look at the end of chapter 5, then that future aspect makes sense. But when you see the reaction of the Lord in verse 4, it's as if he's saying, this is what they say. But that's not really what they're doing. And so he's sort of responding, I think, to the words of, of the people. So again, there, there is a future time, and there is this until, verse 15, I mean, you'll see it there. Again, I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt. There is that time coming. Uh, that will happen. I would, I would simply say that this isn't it. That will happen, but this is, is not it. Which sort of brings us to what I think it makes this more clear, which is the Lord's reasons for rejecting Israel's pseudo-repentance, right? Their, their false repentance. So he says in verse 4, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Again, God sees... God knows. He's already said that in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. Uh, he, he knows that this is nothing more than a lip service uh, profession. And you can sense a little bit of the Lord's, um, sort of how you would say, frustration or a- agony that he has to deal with shallow or false repentance. Uh, it... it, it it's, it's like that time in the life of Christ just before the crucifixion. You remember in Matthew chapter 23 when Jesus is on the mount overlooking Jerusalem and in verse 37 he says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. <coughs> And so, yes, the Lord knows all things, right? But that doesn't, 
that does not discount or take away the reality that 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 kind of exasperation is is real. All right? I mean, just because the Lord knows that when people bring to him false worship doesn't mean that that does not grieve the heart of God. Right? You say you say well, well he knew it was he knew it what it was anyway. We'll say well so so what? <laughs> right? I mean, he he sees it. I mean, does that even makes it maybe even even more frustrating, right? I mean, it's it doesn't remove that. It is truly a a grievous uh, situation. So the Lord cuts through their words and down to their hearts and exposes what is really going on. And what He says here is that there is no loyalty. Uh, you, you remember back the uh, the introduction to this again, the sort the sort of the second part of this book. Back there, if you'll want to turn it back over to chapter four, maybe just a page, chapter four, verse one. Again, this was the this is sort of the the summary of the indictments. Okay, this kind of kicks off this this next major section. And again, this is the transition sort of in, in the book. Hosea 4.1, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. So the Lord has, again, it's this, it's this legal language. The Lord has a, a case against them because, and he lists these three things. He says there's no faithfulness, which is a word for truth. So there, there, is, no, there is no truth in the land. It's, it's actually a term that's only mentioned here in, in Hosea. Secondly, he says there is no kindness, or we said that would be probably better translated as there's no loving kindness, because this is that Hebrew word that, that is used to describe the loyal, loyal love, covenant love, covenant faithfulness. And so he says there is no loyal love or loyalty on the part of Israel. And then thirdly, there is no knowledge of God in the land. So there's a lack of knowledge or we say a lack of true understanding of God among the people. So there's no recognition on um, the people's part of God's authority nor obedience to his will. And it's this second one that is brought up again in chapter 6, verse 4, when he says there is no loyal love. He's just saying it's, it's, it's vacuous. It is fleeting. He even compares it here to, he says it's like the morning fog or it's like the morning dew. It doesn't last. And this has been their track record. And this is the thing that has brought about God's judgment. The God says, from the very beginning, this has been the history of Israel. They say that they're loyal, but their loyalty is like the morning fog. <laughs> they're, they're loyal for a period of time, but a very brief period of time. And then they're disloyal. And that disloyalty manifests itself in, 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 in lots of ways. And so verse 5, he says, and this is again back to Hosea 6, Therefore I have honed them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. So he's just simply saying that the prophets that God sent to them through the centuries, so throughout their history, the prophets that came, came primarily with words of condemnation rather than comfort and cheer. 
right? I mean, the prophets usually came to announce that God was judging them for their disloyalty and their unfaithfulness. So this is their past. They have been guilty of pseudo-worship. Again, this isn't new in the life of Israel. This is something that God has addressed time and time again throughout their history. So they've been guilty of this pseudo-worship in times past for which God has chastened them. And these judgments is as if he's saying, and those judgments have bridged into their present set of circumstances. So all those things that have been said, all those times when God brought prophets and they announced judgments, and here we go again, right? This is not something new in the life of Israel. And the message of judgment that the prophets before Hosea's time, that message is just, it's been, here it comes again, right? Warning after warning, uh, judgment after judgment, they just seem to not learn the lesson or they learn it, but it doesn't last for very long. And then comes this, again, prophetic condemnation of false worship in verse 6, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So he's just saying, I don't, want, I don't just want your words, right? I don't want your empty <coughs> motions. I want you. I want your heart. I delight in real loyalty. I delight in real seeking. I delight in real knowledge. We looked uh, last time at uh, this uh, passage in 1 Samuel 15. Again, this is when Samuel's uh, confronting Saul and his disobedience and says in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So again, it's not to say that God... Because some people go to the extreme and say, well, see, it was the fact that they went to do sacrifice, or the fact that they even had a priesthood, or that they did... That's not the problem. God prescribed those things. (laughs) It wasn't the fact that they were doing those things. is that they were doing them and their heart was, was not right with the Lord. And so they were willing to, in some ways, disobey God's revealed will and then do parts of it with a corrupt heart and the wrong motivation and then somehow justify that because they had made a sacrifice in this, that case as if Saul saying, I spared those animals so that I could sacrifice to the Lord when God had said, don't spare the animals. So I'm going to somehow, I'm going to leap over what God made clear and justify it because I'm going to take that and do something with it that's going to please God. Just saying you can't do that. That's just, it's not, it's not acceptable. In fact, it's, 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 it's divination, <laughs> right? It's, it's demonic. There's other passages that deal with this, this uh, sort of disconnect Psalm 40, verse 6, says, Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. She's saying this is more than just sacrifices. This is about... This is about having God's truth 
in the inner man. This is about His Word being at home in my heart. It's about delighting to do the will of God. Psalm 51, verse 6. This Again, this is an expression of David's repentance after the, the sin of adultery and murder. He says, Behold, you, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Again, David understood this. He was, this, wasn't, this wasn't false repentance in David's life. This was genuine, true repentance. And what does David say? David says, God desires truth in the inner man. That's where he wants this. This cleansing and this purifying, where does that have to happen? Is it going to just happen out here, right, with religious ritual and ceremony? No, it's not about that. This is about God doing a work in me, cleansing me from the inside out. Isaiah chapter 1. Verse 11, what are, you, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an, is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath... The calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with blood. And then he says this in verse 16. Wash yourselves Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do what is learn, learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead the widow. Plead for the widow. Again, if you're going to say it, you got the actions have to come, right? Because he just gives them a punch list and just basically says, if if you want to please me then just obey me in these areas. <laughs> just, just seek justice. I mean, the implication is that's not what they were doing, right? They were tolerating injustice, but yet they were multiplying prayers. And so he's just contrasting offerings, prayers, feasts, Sabbaths. You can do all of that, but you're failing to do good because he tells them, learn to do good. So you're doing all that. We'd say, well, those, that's good stuff, Right? No, not really. Not if your heart, again, is perverted and, and, and corrupt and polluted. So it says, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless. In other words, stand up against unrighteousness and, and, and defend those who have been taken advantage of. Amos chapter 5, verse 21. I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Can you imagine if, can you imagine if we were in worship this morning and we're in the second song... Right? I mean, Darby's trying to lead us to, 
to, to push, to get the things of the world out of our hearts and our minds and to focus on Christ and the truth and, and, and to come together as a, as, a, as a group of redeemed people and honor God with our lips and our lives. And we get to song two and the sound system just goes dead and a voice from heaven says, take away from me the noise of your songs. <laughs> I mean, I'm like... It would blow our minds. But I'm just telling you, folks, sometimes, and I'm not saying this is true of the, the, the entire church. I'm just saying, let's just bring it home. There are times that, that I do this. There are times that you do this, right? You may be a believer. I may be a believer in the Lord, but there are times that we come to worship when the Lord could say that of us, right? He could just say, stop singing. <laughs> just get your heart right. Stop praying, Humble yourself, confess your sin, repent, take your sin seriously. You know, I mean, truly honor me with your life. Don't come in here and just say a bunch of words. Micah chapter 6, verse 6, with, with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the Lord on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn? For my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Because it's just to think about what he's saying. What can I do? What can I do? I mean, thousands of rivers of oil and all these sacrifices. You know what? I'm even going to take Josiah or Tiffany. (laughs) I'm going to give them to the Lord. I mean, I'm going to get their very lives to the Lord. And it says, but what does the Lord really want? What does he really require? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I'm just saying, I don't, I don't need all of that stuff. You know what I need? What I'm looking for? Humility. Humility. Repentance. Kindness. Loving kindness. Loyalty. A desire to do what is right. Justice and righteousness. So these are the, this, is, this was Israel's problem. And, and it wasn't an accidental thing. It was a very high-handed thing, which becomes clear in verse 7, when he says, But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. So he says, like that first man, Adam, who willfully disobeyed, they have disobeyed. They have deliberately stepped over the line. They didn't do this out of ignorance. They weren't in some kind of a fog. They knew where the line was drawn, and they crossed it anyway. And in that, they have betrayed the Lord. They have dealt treacherously against Him, which speaks of their infidelity. So again, don't, don't forget this. This is personal, right? When we're... We're talking about transgressing against the Lord's word. We're not talking about something that is something that has is disconnected from our relationship to Him. The scriptures always tie these things together. Yes, you violated what He said, but in doing that, you were disloyal to Him. This is a very per- sin is very personal to the Lord, and their acts of rebellion and their betrayal are 
very specific. So he makes this statement about their disloyalty. But again, the point here is that he's bringing these, he's making the statements and then he's giving examples. And so he'll say this and they might be going, I I, I don't understand. How could you say that? And he's like, okay, (laughs) I'm not going to overwhelm you with examples, but let me just give you a few. Verse 8. Gilead is a city of wrongdoers tracked with bloody footprints. <laughs> Exhibit A, to prove the point, right? That is to say there was a city or perhaps representative of a region of Israel that was known for its murderous and violent history. And again, we don't have all the details of what that is, but evidently it's, it was clear to the audience, right? To, to make that statement would have brought to their minds, oh, Gilead, <laughs> Forgot about that. Verse 9, right? He brings them back to the priests, which were mentioned back in chapter 4. Verse 9, And as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed crime. So he says, Even the priest lurked as a band of robbers and murdered the travelers on the way to Shechem, one of the cities of refuge. Right? So people that are perhaps even fleeing to the cities of refuge, the priests are actually... In a sense, they're, they're supposed to be the spiritual leaders. But like robbers who wait to ambush someone, or like muggers, they, they commit this villainy, this evil, this wickedness. It's actually this, this term here when they say they've committed crime. It's actually a word for lewdness. So it's, it's, it's this um, sense of wickedness sort of and mixed with this immoral, this, this sense of immorality, uh, this impurity. Verse 10. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled itself. Again, the Lord sees all of these atrocities with his x-ray vision. Right? And he says it is a repulsive thing. And this is, a, again, a reference back to chapter 5. You'll notice there in verse 3 when he says, I know Ephraim. And Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot, and Israel has defiled itself. So all these things are open, and they're always clear to him with whom we have to do. The Lord knows the fact, and he knows the extent of Israel's pollution. So it has been exposed, and now it is exposed again. Verse 11 Also, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you. In other words, Judah, don't think that I've forgotten about you. So yes, there there would be a delay after the Assyrian invasion before God would use the Babylonians to invade the southern kingdom. But he basically says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You will, ro- you will reap what you sow later than when you sow and more than you sow. So he's, again, the, the, the main audience throughout Hosea are the northern tribes, but we've seen already several times where he doesn't just target them, but he makes these sort of almost parenthetical comments to say, Oh, Judah, by the way, oh, Judah, it's coming. It's not going to come at the same time, and it's not going to be in exactly the same way but that judgment is going to come against you. And then you'll notice this uh, second part of verse 11, 
which I think really goes with verse 1 of chapter 7. You'll notice the parallelism there. The end of verse 11 says, When I restore the fortunes of my people. And then the first line of chapter 7, When I would heal Israel. So in, in the Hebrew Bible, this, this last line of text in chapter 6 is put next to the first part of chapter 7, but on the same line. So I, I tried to, I just took a photo of this. I hope I don't know how clear this will be. But to try to show you this, this is uh, the Hebrew uh, Bible. You get down, you see we've got chapter 6. Okay, we're going 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. And then you'll notice this is the first part of verse 11. But then what they've done is they've put the second part, this when statement, the second part of, cha- of, of verse 11 on the same line as, you'll notice here, chapter 7, verse 1. So what they're doing is they're recognizing the fact that this when is parallel to this first part of chapter 7, verse 1. So they're seeing this as something together. So it's just sort of an awkward break. Um, in fact, the Holman Standard Bible... Uh, this will even, not, not all the translations are like this, but notice what this version, this Holman Standard Version did. Verse 11, a harvest is also appointed for you, Judah, period. And then they capitalize this. Because in a lot of your versions, it's just a lowercase win, right? They stop the sentence here and then say, when I return my people from captivity, when, and then they made this win a lowercase. You see the difference? Because in yours, it's probably... This one's probably lowercase, and this is probably uppercase. So what they've done is they've recognized this break here and lumped this phrase with this phrase by capitalizing that and making this lowercase. So we'll come back. We'll hit this a little bit next time, just, but just to, just to kind of let you know, it's, it's, it's an awkward... This phrase here is, a, is, does, is kind of awkward with this phrase here because I don't think that the harvest here is a positive thing. <laughs> but it, then you jump to this, and it's as if, oh, he's talking, this is a, this is a hope-filled statement. And so this harvest is not good, and so it's kind of like, okay, whoa, judgment's coming for Judah, and what, what is he talking about? Now he's talking about the time when his people, Israel, will return. So we'll, we'll come back, we'll try to lump these together, but that, that may uh, sort of visually help you to see what's going on there. So let me just make, let me just make this comment. Um... Again, this, this, this final verse here, this is not an if statement, but a when statement. This is going to happen, uh, not yet, but in the future, that Israel will return to the Lord. But this is what I think is being stressed here. And again, we've seen this in, back in chapter 5 and in chapter 4. The fact that they will not return to God until He turns them. So let that sink in. Israel will not return to God until he turns them. So this is that sort of tension you have in, in the scriptures where you're trying to reconcile these things like sovereignty and responsibility. This is one of those places where we, we just understand there is a responsibility for people to repent. There is a responsibility for people to turn and to return to the Lord. And yet, 
we see time and time again in the Scriptures the fact that they will not repent unless the Lord gives them, if you want to call it a kickstart, right? The Lord has to do something that precedes them returning. And you see this over and over and over again. Again, they're seeking God and God has withdrawn Himself right back in chapter 5. They say they want to know Him, but He doesn't want to show Himself to them. Right? So it's, it's, it's in His court, right? Now that doesn't mean that we're not culpable and responsible. The command is to repent. Right? We see it over and over and over again. Repent, repent, repent. We're responsible to do that. And yet the thing that drives us, folks, to, uh, to the right attitude an attitude of humility and an understanding and grasp of God's mercy is to say, Lord, help me repent. Right? So we, 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 we get this. We understand this as, as believers. Jeremiah chapter 31, which really launches three chapters dealing with the new covenant. Verse 18 says this, I have surely heard Ephraim grieving, saying, You have chastised me and I was chastised. Like an untrained calf, bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. (laughs) Think about what he says. Bring me back that I may be restored. Or you could say this. Bring me back so that I can return. So that's the work that God does in the hearts of believers, right? Is that they're commanded to return but they understand that the Lord has to bring them back for them to be able to do that. He says, verse 19, For after I turned back, I repented. And after I was instructed, I smote on my thigh, I was ashamed and also humiliated because I bore the reproach of my youth. Just saying that the Lord turned me and, and then this repentance, it's like, then I changed, but the Lord had to do that first in me. Jeremiah would say this in Lamentations 5.21, Restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. In other words, we need God's help to turn back to Him. And I think that one of the failures on Israel's part and what is, I think, the thing that what's going on in those first three verses of chapter 6 is that even though there seems to be a recognition on Israel's part that they've done wrong and that God has promised to bring judgment and devour them. And it, they're, they're, they are so, I think it's just presumptuous what they're saying. The Lord's going to do this and then He's going to do this. You know, it's, it's sort of, I was telling, um, I think it was, I was talking to Caleb yesterday. We had some, some neighbors that used to uh, attend a uh, Catholic church in the community and, and they were going gambling one weekend, and I, we caught, I caught them at the end of the driveway. They, they looked like they were headed out of town. And, and I asked them, hey, where are you going? They said, we're going to Biloxi. <laughs> they were gonna go. I'm like, well, you don't just go to Biloxi for, I mean, you know, just, if you say you're going to Biloxi, you know. And they said, well, they said, and they knew I was a Christian, and, of course, they would have professed to be Christians. But they said, the, the wife said, Joel, she said, now, I know it's wrong. She said, but we love it. And then she said, and it's okay because we'll just go to Mass when we get back. And I, I told Kato last night, I said, that is their theology in a nutshell. I know it's sinful, but I love it. And I'm going to do it 
but that's okay. I have a way out. I mean, isn't that basically, that's basically what you're saying? Folks, I think that's, that's what's going on with Israel. We know it's sinful, but we love our sin. But you know what? We got a way out of this. And they, they presumed upon God. They presumed upon God's promises. They presumed upon the relationship they had with him. They overlooked the history of their harlotry and their disobedience. And that's, that's the pride and the arrogance that was at work that blinded them. Rather than them saying, Lord, restore us to you that we may be restored. Turn us so that we can return to you. They assumed that any time they wanted, they could return. So we'll just keep sinning. It's going to keep sinning and keep sinning. And then I guess when we're done enjoying our sin, then we'll return to the Lord. That's not the way it works, right? The Lord's saying, no, there's a problem with that because you need me to turn you before you can return. And the Lord may not do that when you want him to, right? You can't just call the shots. You just can't tell God when you want him to turn you so that you can return. So the lesson for us is we'll never, we'll never return to God until he turns us. And then let me just mention one, one other, maybe a takeaway for us, and that is this. We can't even get repentance right without God's help. I mean, we don't even get this repentance thing right without God's grace. One of the things we can learn from this chapter is the fact that many times our words and our actions and our heart attitudes don't always line up. And this is often the case with our repentance. Uh, this issue of repentance is a big deal. In fact, you know, we just celebrated the, um, the 500-year Luther thing this whole last year, 2017. But think about this. Out of the 95 theses posted on the church door in, in Wittenberg in 1517, the first three of those dealt with repentance. Right out of the gate, listen to these. Number one, Luther wrote this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent... He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So what's he saying? Repentance is not something you just do one time, right? When you get saved, you become a repenter, right? This becomes a part of who you are. Number two, this word cannot be understood as referring to the sacraments of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. So he's saying... It's, it, has, it doesn't have to do with this, this corrupt system in the Catholic Church. And we're, we're not talking about penance. When we say repentance, we're not talking about penance. Those are very different things. Number three, yet it does not mean solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless un, unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh. This is what Luther was getting at. True believers in Jesus are true repenters of sin. And true repentance is first a disposition of the heart that must be demonstrated in our words and our lives. That is to say, it needs to be more than just words. It begins in the heart, but don't just say it's in your heart, right? If it's in your heart, it'll work itself out. You'll see the evidence of that. So rather than truly turn to the Lord and away from sin, this is what we do. We wallow in self-pity. 
And we say to ourselves, I can't believe that I did this. I hear this all the time. I can't believe that I did that. Really? <laughs> you can't believe that you did that. Then you don't know a lot about sin. You don't know a lot, of, you don't know a lot about your enemy. I mean, if you're sitting around in self-pity and wallowing in your sin saying, I can't believe I did this, then, then something's wrong. Sometimes we do that. Sometimes we're all concerned about personal embarrassment. And so we say, you know, we, th- we think to ourselves, what are, what are others going to think of, about me now? Yeah? What are people going to think about you? They may just learn something true about you, right? Rather than what you've been putting up, right? Propping up as something for them to see and admire. Or we have shameful regret that focuses on self. Or we have unbelieving guilt that won't appropriate God's forgiveness. We come up with all kinds of false substitutes for what the Bible describes as real repentance. But repentance, and I just put a list up here. Repentance is not worldly sorrow, sorrow or pouting, which is more concerned about consequences than the possibilities of change. Penance, it's not about penance or some, for, some form of self-atonement. It's not about a, simply a confession that doesn't seek forgiveness. It's not a partial confession where a person tells some of the truth but not all the truth. In fact, think about this. A true confession typically reveals more than what others already know. Think about that. A true confession typically reveals more than what others already know. Because what we do sometimes is only we only confess the, what we think people know. Right? So we're worried about what? What are we thinking about? How much do they know? And if they know it, well, I can't, I can't win that battle, right? So if they've learned this thing about me, I'll confess that, but I won't confess any more than that. That's not true repentance. It's not true repentance. Repentance is not self-centered motivation with the intent of getting some kind of reward because of the confession. So this, the reward of repentance, folks, is a clear conscience. <laughs> the reward of repentance is right relationships. And it's not damage control in order to save face. Right? The repentant person doesn't, doesn't care that much about his losses. A person that's it's, it's, it's shallow repentance or false repentance, they're all concerned about what they're going to lose. So repentance involves an earnestness that does not fade. It's not, it's not this sort of, vape, sort of vapor-like thing that's there for a moment and then gone. It's not like the morning dew. There's an eagerness to clear yourself. There's a hatred of sin more than the hatred of consequences. There's a fear of God rather than the fear that others will find out a longing and concern for restoration rather than a desire to let bygones be bygones and a desire for justice rather than a desire to get out of the consequences. Or as the Westminster Catechism says, repentance is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of true, a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin Turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. That is to say, the heart of true repentance is not simply turning from sin and toward God, but coming back to God with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. So thinking about the new year, do you need a renewed resolve to fight against your habitual sin? Is there a, is, 
if there is sin, uh, there is sin that you've been battling for a long time, what would it take to finally put that to death? Because, folks, we all struggle with sin. And, 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 and there are, our struggles may be, maybe I struggle with fear, fear of man, maybe it's lust, maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's despair. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we battle. I'm saying, what is that thing that you've been battling for a long time and that you don't seem to be making any, any progress in that area? I'm saying, what, what would it take? What things do you need to change in order to fight that battle more vigilantly? Maybe you need a new plan for fighting sin. Are you willing to confess your sins quickly so that your prayers are not hindered? What do you get from your sin? Do you get more uh, pride, more respect, more pleasure, more success, more of your selfish desires met? What lies keep you from turning your back on, on your sin? What doubts hinder you? What obstacles stand in the way? If you are hiding your sin in the dark, let this year be the year you bring it into the light. Because mold grows in the darkness, not in the light. And if you are discouraged, if you are disenfranchised and disappointed, and it happens, right? You, you battle, you're struggling with sin, struggling with sin, and it gets discouraging. But you have to keep in mind, always, always remember, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. Always more mercy. And what we need to do, we need to take sin seriously, get serious about the battle, but realize from an attitudinal perspective, we need God's help to do this. This is not about just launching out there and we can make this happen. No, this is about saying to the Lord, Lord, I want to return to you. I want to deal with this, but I need you to turn me. Right? I need your help to understand what genuine repentance truly is. I may not understand what genuine repentance is all about. Help me to understand what that is. Help me to know what loyalty to you is all about. Help me to understand what a true knowledge of you is all about. And by God's grace, you'll do that. You'll turn to Him and you'll turn from, from that sin that has been, been plaguing you maybe for weeks, months, possibly even, even years. But now's the time to sort of renew that it's a great time to do that, to renew your, your effort in that and to begin by having the right heart attitude. But you can't do this on your own. And don't assume you understand and don't assume that you know, but cry out to the Lord for help and grace. So we'll come back to, we'll kind of pick up the tail end of chapter 6 next time and then kind of again go right into chapter 7. We'll come, we'll, we'll, we'll revisit this issue of repentance uh, briefly, and then and then we'll move on into into chapter seven. But a good word for us as we start into the new year: just uh, get our hearts and attitudes in the right place. And even as we now go over here to worship, to just think in our in our prayers, in what we say, in what we hear, in, in what we practice, in in the words that we we sing together. Just we don't want the Lord to say, "Stop doing that," right? We want the Lord to be pleased in that. And that begins here, folks. It begins here in the heart and in the inner man. So just uh, make, that, make that your prayer this morning. All right, folks. We'll stop there, and we'll pick up there, Chapter 7, next time. Uh, appreciate your time. Good to be back.